you have your Bible, your device, whatever you're using, let's turn to Joshua 24. We are close to the end of our study together. We now find ourselves in one of the most climactic dialogues that Joshua has with the people of Israel prior to him uh, passing away at an old age. Having now lived for a lengthy time with the people of Israel, serving under Moses, leading himself, watching God do all kinds of wondrous works, Joshua is now at a point where he would pass on. We've been covering this farewell address in the latter portion of of Joshua chapter 24. And yet as we turn to this passage in Joshua 24, uh, we are often very familiar with this particular statement. Joshua 24, 14, and 15 is the only place we're going to be today, and we'll take a look at the people's response uh, next week. But it is so important what Joshua calls uh, the believers to of Israel that he charges them to live a certain kind of life. living a certain way that God would be honored and he would be pleased. Read with me, if you would, Joshua 24. Uh, Listen as I read here, it says this. It says, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Over the years in pastoral ministry, it's been a delight of mine to get to know uh, people in my congregation. And often at various times, you'll go into a house, will you not? And perhaps many of you, and this is, uh, you'll have seen a plaque, a picture, something with this statement. It could be engraved on a stone outside before you walk in the, in the house. I've seen it that way. I've seen it on a picture in a living room or something like this as people walk in that this statement, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I've seen many times in where these statements are displayed, plaques, pictures, engravings of this statement, of which in, men, in, in some occasions, a household is far from the very thing that they put on their own wall. It's just a level of decor, something to have people come in and see that this is a Christian household and that we follow Christian principles and it stands out immediately. But I wonder, as we begin to grapple with this, Of course we understand it's not a problem to put this on our wall and not a problem to put this in places where we'll remember it, but the challenge for us is do we follow this command and have this kind of determination in the midst of our life? This this principle, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, to serve our God faithfully, cannot just be something that we get, get comfortable with putting on our wall and walk by it in comfortability saying, oh yeah, we serve the Lord here. 
And yet if you would investigate different portions, the marriage, the family, the, the, uh, the, the places they go, the places that they invest their time and their energy, perhaps it could be exactly opposite than what that statement actually declares. It is the duty of a believer and a responsibility to make sure that we recognize that our life is not just about talking in a Christian way, going to Christian places, doing Christian things. It is at the core of who you are and who we are as followers of God that we would take a statement like Joshua and ask ourselves the question, is that me? Can I say that? Do I say that? Does my family model that? If I have it in my house, is that something that we live by or just something we like the way it looks on the wall? It has to be more than just something we say. And this is where Joshua, now at the end of his life, calls the, the people of Israel to take notice that this cannot be just a verbal assent to things that they know God would want to hear, but they have to be an inner, deep-seated disposition, a declaration of their heart to say, I will do this. I will follow God, even if no one else does. That is where, as Joshua continues after this legacy of God's redemptive activity, he, he recalls them to get them to this climactic statement and charge to them. Remember your God. Remember how he delivered you from Egypt. Remember how he delivered you in the conquest. Remember, remember, remember. Why? So that you will choose to serve the Lord and you will never forget he's always going to be with you. That was the promise at the beginning of the conquest. I will never leave you or forsake you. But you know what the problem is? It's not that God will leave us. The problem is we end up leaving God. It is not God who strays from the path and needs to get back on track with what's going on in the world. It is us who end up straying from his path and need to be guided back by a work of the spirit, by a life in the body by a mutual concern to follow these kinds of principles and declaration. And this morning, as Joshua would give this address to the people, this Joshua will address this charge to you. Determine which direction you're headed this morning. I don't know where your Christian walk is. I don't know exactly in detail everyone's life that they have been living. I don't know... Perhaps if you come this morning and you say, you know, I, I just kind of come on Sunday and I try to fit in, but then during the rest of your week, you're doing things that, that God would not be pleased with. Or if you've hidden some level of, of frustration and, and bitterness or difficulty in your life, God knows about it. And if you choose to live that way, you will go to, you will live in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord, your God. We must choose the direction that we are going to be headed. And if you're not there this morning, you're going to hear a lot of things of challenging you this morning out of this text to say, fight hard the Christian fight of faith to be what God wants you to be. Don't, don't hear me say this, that all the people in here are perfect Christians. 
As if, because if we had to say, all imperfect Christians stand up, we'd all be standing. It's not an issue that we believe anyone in here or at any time is perfect as a Christian. But you must determine which direction you will head and you have to be focused in on how to get there. And the only way to know how to get there is to get into his word and find the truths that God gives to your life and to mine so that I know which direction I'm heading. See, Satan is all about desiring to distract you. Frankly, I think one of the most opportune times is on a Sunday morning where he's trying to get people distracted about any given thing. Dinner that's waiting for them afterward, the people they're going to go out to lunch with, you name it, people who are fidgeting in front of them. Satan is constantly trying to do a work to distract you so that you do not heed the words of the Lord. I encourage you this morning, evaluate your life. What direction are you headed? Are there places that you say, you know, God, I'm just not going to follow you there. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be this kind of person. It is the sole duty of the Christian and the believer to make sure that we are headed in God's way and in the way of Christ. If we find ourselves or anyone in the body of Christ heading in a different direction, it would be terrible if all of a sudden we saw that and we just said, keep going. Live your lives in a way that you model this kind of direction in your life. Well, one of the ways that we're going to evaluate that is by looking at various portions of this text through a set of through a four different sets of questions. Because questions often become the way in which we can evaluate our own heart. Notice these commands that are given in Joshua chapter 24, 14. He says, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him. These are imperatives. These are commands to the believer. These are commands to the follower of God. We're not called to just say, well, I'll think about it. I'll take that into consideration. No, see, a command is something that when you do, you either do it or you don't do it. But you do it of your own will. You don't just say, oh, sorry about that. I just didn't happen to fear the Lord. It just, it was an accident. See, you either choose to follow in the fear of God or you are choosing to follow someplace else or someone else. And I would, I would, Give this as a question this morning for you and I to ask ourselves, who or what are you fearing in this life? You know, so often we get caught up with various elements and where we think about this idea of fearing the Lord and just what is that to fear the Lord? Is this a sense of which I should come to church and I should feel this presence of that God is angry at the world? That, that I'm afraid of God because of what God can do with his ultimate power. If he can deliver people, then what could he do to me? So if my obedience to God is only connected by a dimension of behavioral fear, oh, I better do this, much like a child doesn't sometimes obey because they desire to obey, like, have you ever done this with your children? You told them to do various things and you set up various things that, uh, that they had to do before you returned back from doing something. 
And the moment that you walked in the door, it's as if everybody stepped up the game and scurrying around, like, oh, we're almost done. Like, we're, we're just about there. We, we started just about 30 seconds ago. <laughs> like, will that be the way in which we end up meeting the presence of the Lord and fearing him? Oh, I, I fear you, God. I started just 30 minutes ago. Or will it be a life declaration for you? One that is so at the heart and core of who you are that I must serve the Lord. I have no other choice. See, it's either fear God or fear something or someone else. And that's really the choices that we have. Fear is not just of being afraid. And by the way, I think there is a real sense that we should actually fear the Lord. Here is a God who is the, who is the eternal judge of heaven who can, who can, by his own wisdom and understanding, know who has confessed, repented, and turned to Christ. His hand will justly send people to eternity in hell because they don't fear him. They don't want his ways. They don't care about him. But fear is another dimension, which is often uh, one of the ways in which it's conveyed in the Bible. It's not just a, I'm afraid of God. It is a awe and respect of God. Believer, do you stand in awe of him? When you worship and you praise the Lord together, does it come from a heart where you are reflecting and concentrating on the reality that this God is like no other God. There is no God who could match this God. All other gods are false and fictitious. They don't deserve to be given time and energy. See, the Proverbs are written with Solomon's reality in mind, helping us with this perspective when he writes something like Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Can I just tell you if you're not in the word of God on a regular basis what does that say about how you fear him? where wisdom comes from, where authority stands and lies. See, we can say and talk about fearing God, and then we can say, oh yeah, I do that on Sunday. But do you do that consistently through your life? And yes, do we all, are we, we are not all at the perfect place, but there's gotta be a place where you begin to start heading in that direction. And if you're here this morning, and you're not fearing the Lord the way you ought to, which is likely all of us, then we've got some questions to ask, some choices to make. What do I fear? So often in this lifetime, we exchange the fear of God for the fear of other people. See, Solomon was so deliberate in writing Proverbs 1 uh, and all the book of Proverbs to help us with this reality that fear, this awe of God, is the beginning of knowledge because how do you even embrace an authoritative word of God unless there isn't an eternal authoritative God? See, an eternal authoritative word comes from an eternal authoritative God. Yes, it means there is one single primary authority in the world at large. 
of which the predominant culture and most cultures in the world will not embrace it. We have now become a culture where truth is fine as long as it's elastic. Truth is whatever you want it to mean at whatever occasion you want it to mean it so that you can do whatever you want to do with it. And well, it's often accompanied by this idea like, well, get, I'm not here to offend. Have you ever got the sense of what you're reading in the Bible that he kind of offends you? He alters your patterns and makes you choose and desires for you to choose things in a way that would be pleasing to him and not to you. It is his goal to set us with knowledge and understanding. Fools despise knowledge and wisdom and instruction. We know this is the case when Solomon would pen something down, like Ecclesiastes 12, at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Another way to say it is, this is what should mark your life. If somebody were to meet you, and they were to get to know you over a period of a month, a week, a few days, you know what they should come out being able to say? That person, that family, that husband and wife, those children, they fear God. When they're given choices to do other things, they're evaluating based on God's word, with God's principles. They're making sure they're following strictly to the standards of God. They're not allowing it to be so elastic that they can say one thing and do another. They're committed. They fear knowing and stand in reverence and awe of this one triune God who has come to save his people, who has come to rescue Israel, who has come to rescue us from a real big problem. And you know what that problem is? It's not a very popular thing to say these days. Sin. God sends people, and Jesus will ultimately send people to an eternally separated place known as hell because they refuse not to follow God but desire to live in their sin. Joshua had saw this so many times in the course of his life. So I think often when I read the text of the conquest and Joshua's address to the people, when he gives charges like this from beginning to end, and the people's responses are like, we're gonna follow you. I'm like, I wonder if Joshua's kind of like, I mean, mean like you did with Moses, and like you did at the waters of Meribah, and like you did when you were complaining when Moses struck the rock of which he's not here, and uh, which time? <laughs> but Joshua was fixed that the benefit and the blessing that God would have for his people would come by strict adherence and obedience to God's word alone. And you will not obey someone who is an authority figure who you don't stand in awe of and that you aren't afraid of to some degree that he has the authority and the right to tell you and I what is good for us. You and I left to ourselves, would always choose what is wrong. And he came to rescue us 
from idolatry and worship that is so far from God. When we don't fear God, we often fear other people. Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, I've seen this over the years and perhaps you have as well, that the moment we decide to not fear God, we begin to fear other people. We fear their, 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 their look. We fear how they will think of us. We fear what, oh man, if I, if I do this, what's someone going to say about me? If I, if I associate here, he says this, anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. Oh, I've been around people long enough and lived life long enough to realize there's components of fear of man that reside within my own soul. Fear of man that exists in such a way that I have to face it each and every Sunday to think, I'm going to preach another sermon. I wonder what they all think about that. Like, I wonder how they think it went. Was it eloquent? Was it good? Was it like, hey, pastor, great, but you're no John MacArthur. Like, you're right. <laughs> See, fear of man can exist in so many different forms in so many different ways where the, the, the life's goal of our mind becomes what does someone else think? What you should be concerned, what I should be concerned with is did I deliver the truth? Because I already told you I was imperfect. You knew that when you got it. And you knew that when you came together to be here, assembled as a body, that no one here stands in perfection before God. That we all need Christ so bad. Because it's without Christ that we begin to take our eyes off him, off the reverence of God and being in awe of him, and we place that awe in others. It's almost as if we just get accustomed to the fact like, oh, here's this person. I've got to act different. I've got to be different. But you're not that way when you're in the presence of God who is always with you. See, fearing God can't just be when you meet other people and when they can see your activity. Fearing God, God knows if you fear him in private. He knows your life. He knows your choices. He knows your thoughts. And you should be asking, does this thought, is it consistent with a declaration of life that looks like reverencing God? Perhaps you're thinking, man, I really need to fear the Lord more. You and me both. Perhaps maybe you need to start maybe this month and take a reading of the book of Proverbs and see and mark in your Bible every single time. Take a proverb, one, every, every a chapter, every day of the month, and start to underline where it talks about the fear of God and the benefits of fearing God over against the person who's the fool. There's a real good way to grow in the fear of the Lord. Don't fear people. Don't fear what they think of you. Fear what God thinks of you. If God looks at your life, no matter what anyone else is saying, and he is pleased with you, you have to discard the criticism and perspectives of other people that will be given for a variety of reasons at any given time and say, but I'm right with God. I would rather be wrong with men but right with God than to be wrong with God and everybody be right with men. 
That must be our focus. See, because we live in a culture where we are having to stand for the principles and authority of the words of God when various components of behaviors and lifestyles have now become normalcy. And we must say, to fear the Lord means to shun, to shun sin in our lives, to remove it from us, to repent of it, to follow God's ways. Well, this is interesting. He says not only fear the Lord, but he also says serve him, which is our, our next question. Who are you serving? Are you trying to serve two different masters? Have you noticed that in your life, the more that you've tried to serve multiple things, that you only really end up serving one? So often we, we fail to see the value of serving God because all we see is serving as a duty and an obligation to which we are forced to have to conform to a world that we didn't put into place and that we don't get to be the ruler of. We forget when the text says in, in Joshua 24, serve him. See, it is who you serve, and it is who I serve that makes all the difference for you and I. Don't hear, well, I have to serve him, I guess. I mean, I'm a Christian now, so I suppose that's what Christians do. We serve, so yeah, I guess sign me up. Find my talent. Put me to work. Don't do too much of it, though, because I got other things I want to do. We forget that it's him that we serve. This holy, gracious kind, filled with power, filled with majesty, that gives you and I the privilege and opportunity. I mean, do you realize what it means for you and I to be an ambassador of Christ? You don't deserve that title, and neither do I. We proclaim the riches of Christ through the mercies of Christ. Where we serve him, the one who has sent his own son to die for us. Where we could have no righteousness in and of ourselves, And yet he gives it to us in the son as we repent of our sin. And we recognize we cannot be, we cannot be citizens of the kingdom. We will never enter heaven unless we repent of our sin. It's him that we will be with for eternity. It is him that allows us the privilege to serve. You go back and you hold a baby and serve in children's ministry and work in VBS and perhaps teach a, an adult class. Guess what? It is him that you serve. The moment you forget that you're serving him, you start to all of a sudden fixate when somebody says you're not serving well enough. Oh, well, who do you think you are? Like, you get to now be the factor of this. And a lot of people get any sense of criticism from service, and immediately they go, well, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> I got tried the service thing, and people were nasty, and so I'm done serving. Countless Christians often make the choice not to serve him. They're comfortable. They come, they attend. They're not disconnected. But they don't want to extend themselves to serving the king of king. 
Be a believer who fears and is in awe of God, and it moves into following the command to serve this benevolent king who has called you out of the riches of his grace, to serve him for the entirety of your life in a multiplicity of capacities so that you and I will not just be a, become about ourselves. We've got enough of that kind of selfish orientation in the world. Christians must be different. They serve others before they serve themselves. Have you done that even this week? Have you even taken time to think about you last God first and others second? So often we're so busy with everything that goes on in our life, we don't take a serious evaluation on our service to him and we just become satisfied. This service is all about exclusivity. And that's why Joshua was calling them to choose. He's saying you can't choose the world and choose God. You have to come down on one side or the other. It's meant to be a choice of exclusivity. You can't just say, I'll fear and serve the Lord and then just go and do what you want. Then you've made your choice. And it wasn't the choice to fear the Lord. In fact, Samuel challenges the people in 1 Samuel 7, 3, when he says this to the people, he said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, what he's really getting at is if you really mean it, if you're really genuine, then put away the foreign gods in the ashtaroths from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Israel's problem, our problem, has always, often, and forever will be a direct connection with a struggle of idolatry. This is not just serve for the sake of serving, because that's what Christians do. It's who you serve that matters. This is a choice that you and I face, and we have to choose to live life in the midst of multiplicity of things that could draw us away and draw our attention away from the living God and to serve him only. I mean, don't you just love this reality of 2 Corinthians 5? We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christians, when's the last time you shared your faith with someone? The last time you're praying for unbelievers to, to see what they could never see without the drawing of the work of the Spirit of God. You are his ambassador. Serve him, at least in a proclamation sense that you are calling people that there is this one true God with exclusive service to him, meaning you have, to, you have to reject everything else in the world and you have to obey the authority of God. You know, all up until the point of accepting God, people are very happy to accept, but when they have to make him exclusive, that's where the rub is. I mean, I can't do this and believe in all these things. No, you have to believe in what God says and what his word teaches, otherwise we're not following his ways. And the exclusivity of that service is, is bore out in our commitment to serve. Notice the kind of fear and serving ought to be marked and characterized by two different perspectives. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
This word sincerity is this word to try to convey this perspective of genuineness, somebody who is unscathed from the world, faultless or without blemish. This person who, as their life is lived before God, that no one wonders whether or not they're an honest, genuine follower of Christ. See, but what if you're a Christian and no one can even tell by the way that you behave? Isn't there something wrong with that? Like there should be. In your mind, you can't just do whatever you want to do. There has to be a sincerity, an honest devotion before the living God to say, I reject what is evil and I cling to what is good. Are you serving with a level of sincerity? And and the text here, the ESV translates it faithfulness. The KJV and the NIV, the NAS translate this word uh, truth. It is the word for truth. Are you a person who is serving in a sense of honest perspective before God who is looking to follow in the truths of God for a long period of time, and that's what the, 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 the interpretation is set to convey, that this person who is so devoted to this truth for a lengthy amount of their days, in Joshua's case, the entirety of his life, that it would be marked by what we call faithfulness. And you can't, faithfulness is not just like, I'll do it today, but not tomorrow. I'll do it next week, but not next month. It is a consistent commitment to believe and endorse and obey all that God said all the time. Doesn't mean he, he knows that you're going to fail it. But what you do when you fail? Do you say, well, you know what? I was thinking rightly. I, I think maybe I'll alter my interpretation. Or do you go back and say, God, you were right. I was wrong. That is the whole essence of repentance, turning from your sin. Serve him. Fear him in sincerity and in truth. Why? Because the only person who is fooled when you're not doing those things is you. God is never fooled. He is never surprised about your lack of commitment, your lack of being in awe, your lack of service. The only one who it blinds is you and others around you that you want them to think certain things about you. Those who are called to fear the Lord and serve him must do it with uh, a mindset of sincerity and in truth. You can't have it both ways. We can't have the world and then just have a little sprinkling of Christianity along the side. This is always true in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, when he would say things like, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. Or Matthew chapter seven, when he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Believer, God wants you to be one of the few who find it. He has so set his mind's affection and love on the people in whom he has created that although the path is narrow and few find it, he has done everything possible to provide the pathway for you to embrace and find the narrow road that leads to life eternal. 
It is that road that will lead to the fear of God, service of him in sincerity and truth. The Bible is always calling us to make decisions on where we are headed in our life. But we never make them without the struggle we have with idolatry. You notice the phrase in the, in the text, put away the foreign gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in, G- in Egypt. And what it ought to say to you, even as we formulate this question, are there any idols in your life that you refuse to put away? That the struggle of idolatry is often seen generationally. You know, when he says, put away the gods your father served. Well, where'd you learn to serve that God? Oh, my dad taught me. I learned that under the family. I learned that in my life. But my heart is also bent to want to follow after my own way. See, their fathers that, that served other gods beyond the Jordan beyond the Euphrates, whether it was the gods of Egypt, the gods of the Babylonian culture, of the gods of the Amorites. He says, not one of them will do. There must be an exclusivity to the God of heaven. Otherwise, he will stand in judgment on us for not following and fearing and serving him. He desires for us to remove the idols from our life so that we can love and serve him. I love what uh, David Pallison says in an article entitled Idols of the Heart in Vanity Fair. He says this, has someone or has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? See, Christians, we are not without our struggle of our own sense of idolatry. Do you notice how you still experience it? That continued residue from our former fleshly nature, which we had once had master over your life? That inner impulse to go against that which God says is restricted, but for which our sinful desires long to rejoice in find satisfaction in, and are blinded thinking that we ourselves know better than the one who made us. Only to stand there at the crossroads of viewing the things that we know to be restricted and yet having the inner impulse to say, but it looks so enticing. You know the feeling I'm talking about, the experience. The same experience Adam and Eve had as they stood at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and began to contemplate that which was restricted, thinking, but but we'll be like God, knowing what we want to know, making that choice to indulge in various components of idolatry, even as a Christian, only to realize again that the inner temptation to indulge in sin had blinded you and bound you to your own guilt. Instead of running to the Lord like a fugitive, we run away and we try to hide as Adam and Eve did in the garden and cover themselves in their own shame, seeking to hide from the authority that lay hold on their life. See, we still struggle with that inner residue of the flesh. 
that impulse of the flesh, which Paul constantly reiterates, like in Romans chapter 6, when he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Notice the flavor of idolatry from Old to New Testament. I'll only just take one text in Ezekiel. I'll start with this. Ezekiel 14, verses 1 to 3, listen to this. Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? And Ezekiel the prophet comes as the elders had set idols in their hearts. 1 John 5, which we had read, closes the book with this short little phrase, little children, keep yourself from idols. Oh, believer, our struggle with fearing the Lord is also an in tandem struggle with wanting to serve other gods. You think, what are the gods that we are tempted to serve as Christians today? You think, well, I don't have an Ashtaroth pole in my house. I don't have a statue. I don't have all of these things that are accounted for in the Bible. But anything or anyone that you allow to take place and in your heart that is more important than God becomes an idol to you. We must take that serious. Because we live in a world where we are tempted. And here's one of the gods, the god of materialism. I mean, have you ever just... You, you remember this experience where it's like you just like, you see something and you think, I gotta have it. That inner impulse of materialism as a God that says, I must have it. I mean, I think they know what they do in their marketing schemes, do they not? Like I go from watching like an Outback commercial to salivating in my mouth, to going, tomorrow I'm having a steak, baby. It moves from the mind, from the eyes, to the, to the, the, the gateway in which we begin to say, I want that. Commercial after commercial that feeds the mindset of humanity to say, you just need this and your life would be better. The God of materialism poses this illusion that if I just possess certain things, I'll be happier. If I just have these kind of clothes and drive this kind of car and live in this kind of house, that this illusion that I begin to create is the one that then brings the satisfaction that only God can bring. And we search for it in other places and often in our culture, materialism becomes a way that people live their lives. But it doesn't stop there. It moves from materialism, and we, we often are so fixated on the God of convenience. I mean, we live in a culture in the West that is at our disposal almost any given convenience than you can imagine. Like, could you imagine having leftovers and not having a microwave to nuke it so you can eat as quick as possible in under a minute? Like the idea of being able to think like, 
I don't even have to go and make anything. I've got a plethora of things at my convenience so I just can go and spend wherever I want to spend. That convenience becomes the way that I live my life. Oh, I feel it every time. I, I, uh, the other day, I felt it when I, I visited uh, McDonald's from their app. And I had this coupon. And it was a, any size you wanted. It's like, I was hungry. I'm like, this is convenient. It's like right down the hill. And I'm thinking, and then I got up there and I ordered what I needed to and then they took the coupon and, and uh, they said, uh, I gave them the coupon and they said, what size, I, I immediately said, well, medium, because it's cheaper, because I want to be a good steward, okay? And then they said, well, the coupon's for any size. I'm like, well, scratch that, supersize me. Like, we want all of it and we want more of it and we want it at our disposal anytime we want it. God is not a God of our convenience, that we just serve him when it's convenient to us. We must serve God exclusively, whether it's convenient to us or not. Whether we stand alone in the culture as people who embrace the authority of the scripture or not, we must stand together that we don't fall prey to materialism and convenience and various components where, I mean, think of the culture of the credit card company. The reason why it's so it, it's so alluring is because you can have what you want and you can have it fast. But we live with a culture that is materialistically focused and conveniently driven because I really believe that we are, we are, we are living in a culture that, that exemplifies the God of self. It's the kind of culture that in 1 Timothy, he starts to talk about it when he says, men will be lovers of themselves. It is often found in ways where people view life and what will make them happy. And many of the buzzwords that are often described today are phrases like this. We want everyone to have a good mental health. Now, I looked up online and I think, you know, like, what? who doesn't want to improve their mental health? I mean, it's like, if you don't want to do that, like who, who wants to do that? It's like, raise your hand. Well, yes, please. I want that. But look at how the world often describes even this reality. I mean, countless articles that I read, all of them summed up in these small, these, these, these short phrases. Here's how to get this kind of self-care that will give you a good sense of, of your own self-worth. Get regular exercise. Like then you're gonna be, you're gonna feel better. Eat healthier, regular meals, stay hydrated. I'm starting to figure out why everybody's walking around with a jug. Because their spirituality is at stake with dehydration. Set goals and priorities. Yes, please do it. Practice gratitude. Focus on positivity. Stay connected with people. Socialize, get out. Don't live life on your own in isolation. See, we are fast becoming a culture that feels fantastic about themselves on their way to hell. Feeling is not where it's at. It's serving him and fearing him in sincerity and in truth. 
We don't want to help pe people get a better version of themselves and feel good about everything they do as they're on their way to the journey in hell. It is so important for us to recognize that so much of the culture and the God of self gets overlaid even in our own Christian lives in such a way that we take good things like these that are mentioned, exercise and eating and goals and gratitude, and we make it the thing that we serve. We don't let God define the priorities, the practices, and the connectivity that he wants us and where he wants us to have it. We say to ourselves, I'll let you know. And no, this couldn't be more uh, understandable in the context of, of the way people often look for church. A consumeristic mindset of, what do you have to offer me and my family? All right, we'll weigh that out against the conveniences. Oh, you don't have a second service. See, that's not going to work for me. See, I need a church with a second service because I don't like waking up at nine. I, I needed something a little bit more convenient. So they start shopping in ways that they're all about them, looking for something convenient even at times while they're verbally assenting to saying, I love Jesus. See, we must have this perspective where we look to God for his truth, for what will satisfy us, bring us hope, give us direction, purpose, meaning. So often this becomes the case in our lives. Be careful of the gods of the world, materialism, convenience, the God of self, be aware of the God of oftentimes of even a nationalistic perspective. Notice how often in the Old Testament the, Jew, the Jews would look at the Gentiles and say, you're just a bunch of dogs. Don't be filled with such a level of nationalistic pride to where it wells up within your soul that, that all other people around the world are not as good as you. Don't be tempted in any kind of way that when various things happen in the culture, election cycles roll around, that your determination is to find your joy and happiness in God. Yes, we are often not going to see things work out perfectly, but God has a plan for it all. It's so critical for us to make sure that we are working in that direction. Question four. What choice will you make? Notice how Joshua says to the people as he closes his charge to them. He says, if it seems evil in your eyes to follow the Lord, then choose. Choose who you will serve. Believers, this is a choice we must all make. We must choose who we're going to serve. This phrase, if it seems evil, think about it in this particular way. This is the, what he's trying to convey. If you don't desire to serve the God of heaven, then you're gonna have to make a choice and your choice will be evidence of your heart's desire on what you believe and we will find out, God will find out who it is that you're worshiping. It's a personal choice. You notice this? But as for me, can you say that, Christian, this morning? As you leave here this morning looking to evaluate your own life, but as for me, 
I can't control anybody else. Erase everyone else out of your mind for a moment. What will you choose when you leave here this morning? When you live your life tomorrow? Will you choose to serve the Lord? Will you choose to be in his word? Will you choose to make sure that no matter what else happens, that you will be in awe and reverence of him? You know what Joshua knew? He could only control himself. You can only control yourself. Fix your mind on making the right choice to control you. Allow your life to be shaped by the truths of the living God. But you notice he doesn't stop there because Joshua recognized that leadership always had influence. He said, but for me, as for me and my house, and in my, this, this declaration of my house is a lot fuller than saying, you know, hey, in my dwelling place that I live at such and such an avenue on such and such a street, this house is gonna serve the Lord. Joshua, Joshua's whole life was connected with clan community where all of a sudden it's him who's the leader of his household and his sons and their sons and their family and their servants and their servants that are constantly following and watching him. And he says, this household, this clan, this community, we choose to serve the Lord. Members at the chapel, we gotta make that decision together. We must choose to serve him together so that collectively, as a body of believers, we are stronger together because we anchor our souls to the truth of God's word. Leadership is critical. Let me just say, men, leaders of households, make the choice. Be a person who serves God in sincerity and truth because you have a generational impact for the rest of your life. Your kids are watching your devotion or lack thereof. Don't make a commitment to the Lord half-heartedly in a way that I'll say, well, I'll commit to you part of the time. Serve the Lord in sincerity because what Joshua continues to declare is that we must make a choice. We cannot serve two masters. We will either love the one and hate the other, Jesus said. Serve the Lord. Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. See, the wisdom of God is the only source that can bring clarity in the midst of the complexities of life. The wisdom of God is more powerful, more accurate, more sufficient, more satisfying, more truthful, more life-giving, and life-changing. Only the wisdom of God is powerful enough to bring clarity to cultural confusion. And only God's word is sufficient and authoritative enough to conform us to the image of the son in whom he delights. See, you and I will choose to worship as we leave here today. It's how God created us. The question isn't whether we will worship. The question will always be, who or what are we worshiping instead of God? It's today that we must fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, take this seriously. Leave here today evaluating, saying, God, I want to serve you better. I want to serve you more faithfully with more sincerity and truth that you would be honored. Let's close in prayer. Father, 
Lord, what a challenge for us. In the midst of a culture where there is still so many ways of the gods of the world. Help us not to be puffed up with pride, create illusions of materialism and convenience. Oh, Lord, that we would not be following the God of self, that we would be lovers of ourself. Lord, that we would be followers of the living God, that we would serve him and him only. Lord, help us in our families. Help the men. Help the fathers and the mothers and the grandparents of this community to aptly take responsibility to serve the Lord, to model this in their families so that the generational impact that would result out of their following of you will bring you glory that is due to you. Lord, help us with this. In your name we pray, amen.